morning, I come continuing a series as we're taking a look at Matthew chapter 24. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to take it out and turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. And today, as we, we look at Matthew chapter 24, we're actually going to begin in verse 15. We've, we've begun taking a look at the, this, the end of the world according to Christ. And what I think is amazing about you know, the timing of this passage is that, you know, as I look around the world that we live in today, I see that among our pluralistic, secular, relativistic, religious culture that we find ourselves in, there's this growing interest in the questions about the end. People are curious about what the end of the world is going to look like. Are we near the end? How do we be prepared? And it doesn't matter from what background you come from. It's almost as though God is stirring within the hearts of people this understanding that something bad is coming or that we live in a bad time and it's moving towards a more challenging time. And I don't know if if God is working and God is moving through the world of entertainment for we see that in recent months and in recent years, many books and movies have been written and put together about the, the end. Um, and the, uh, actors' portrayals or, or um, writers' portrayals of, of what the end of the world is going to look like. Or maybe uh, God is stirring among the fear that is associated with our our loss of safety and security because of terrorist attacks. Or maybe even more recently, God is stirring within people's hearts and using the, the, the reality and the realization that, that we're maybe not as safe as we really think we are. Maybe God is using those things to help us question our own existence and our own destination. And people are asking the question, is this the end? Is the Ebola virus going to bring out total annihilation of people? Or is another meteor going to come and hit the earth and totally annihilate the earth? There are lots of questions out there. But I am so thankful that God has placed us at this time in history. That God has given us life and he says, now this is my plan for you, is that you will be alive on earth at this time in history. And I think it's so exciting to be alive at this time in history is because we are people that are looking around, seeing our friends, our neighbors, even our family members that are living in a world where their hope is being shattered, where the things that they place their hope in are dwindling away or deteriorating. And so we as people that have hope, because we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe that Jesus has said what he has said that he has done and has love for us and is bringing us to his end, we have hope. And it's exciting because now there's people asking questions based on hope that we have the opportunity to engage with the hope that we have inside of us. That God is preparing our neighbors and our loved ones to hear about his plan and to hear about his love. So in this sermon series, as we prepare ourselves to engage our neighbors and to engage our culture, let us be people that are aware, let us be people that are informed, and let us be people that look to Jesus' specific words as to what he says about the end so that we can be ready to engage. 
So as we look at chapter 24 this morning, I wanted to give us a, a, bring us up to speed. If you haven't been here, I wanted to give you the context of what has been taking place. And in chapter 23, as Jesus is, is preparing, he's, he's spending his last week and, and is um, preparing his disciples for his departure as he knows he's going to the cross and then going to go to the grave and then going to be resurrected again. He spends time walking in Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, he spends time in the temple. And in the temple in chapter 23, he's talking to the religious leaders and he's talking about the people of God, and he levels these judgments against the people of God. He tells them that they have rebelled against God, that in their disobedience and their refusal to, to lay their lives down at his feet, that he is going to remove himself from them. He also tells us in chapter 23, Jesus says that the temple is coming down. The temple is going to be destroyed as another way of marking his judgment. And then as chapter 24 begins, we see that his disciples, hearing these words of Jesus, come to Jesus and they come to him with questions. They say, Jesus, when is this going to happen? When is it that you're going to bring about your judgment on God's people? And then also the second question is, when when are you going to return? And when are you going to judge all humanity for their rebellion against you? And so that's what's on their mind. And so Jesus begins, as we started talking last week, he begins answering these questions. So he's, he's talking in some ways, seeking to answer the question of when the temple will be destroyed and when his judgment will come against Israel. But then also he's talking in terms of when the end will come, when his second coming will come. And so we see as Jesus is, is preparing to talk and as he's sharing with his disciples, his prophesying and the purpose of his prophesying is to point to the fact that he has ultimate authority. Jesus is saying is when you see these things happen, know that I am who I said that I am and that no one can deny that I am God. So we look at this passage and we see that um, Matthew chapter 24 verses 15 to 35 is an extreme amount of, of text that has uh, baffled many, many uh, theologians throughout the years. There have been many people that have interpreted it many different ways. And today, instead of trying to spend a whole lot of time trying to talk about all the different interpretations, what I wanted us to do is to begin just by understanding how we interpret this passage and how others have interpreted it so that we can find meaning in it today. So I want to give you three ways that this passage has been interpreted in the past, and then we're going to, to proceed on. So there, one possible way of interpreting this passage is to look from the past perspective. So those theologians or those scholars that have come to 15, verses 15 to 35 have come and looked at it from a past perspective. And basically what they say is that virtually all the events that Jesus is talking about in verses 15 to 35 we're pointing to the fall of Jerusalem that took place and the destruction of the temple that took place in 70 AD. So what they say, those that hold to this perspective, is that Jesus, from verses 15 to 35, is talking about the first question. When will the temple be destroyed? So that's the perspective. And these, those that hold to the past perspective would say it's not until verse 36 that Jesus transitions and begins talking about his second coming. So this is one of the perceptions, or this is one possibility, and there's so many strengths in this. I want to give you some strengths and a couple weaknesses as we move on to the next one. The strength is, is that Jesus immediately is keeping the context in mind. So this is good because he begins talking about specifically about Israel and talk about the destruction of the temple and God's judgment against them, and then he moves right into continuing to talk about that. And so it keeps the judgment of Israel, chapter 3, in mind. Also, we see that it's a strength because there are 
historical events that we know now looking back that the temple was actually destroyed in 70 AD. We know that that's a verifiable fact, historical fact. And so we look back and we can see that as Jesus is talking about this and we see that his instructions that he gives lines up really good with history. But there's a weakness in this perspective or this interpretation. The weakness is I believe that this position minimizes some of the details of Jesus' teaching. In some of the ways, because of the, the closeness and the nearness of the text and, the, and the, also the futureness of the text, we see that in order for this all to take place right before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD or right in the near, right after that, you'd have to almost spiritualize some of the events that we see in verses 15 to 35. So that's one way, looking at it, that it was already all taking place in the past. Another uh, possibility is that everything that Jesus is talking about here takes place in the future. So there are some that come to this passage and they say, we need to interpret everything that Jesus is saying based on the future. So they say that all these things, the the temple being destroyed, that was a fact, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. They say, no, Jesus is going to do all of these things in the future. And so the challenge is with, this, with that line of thinking is that it totally disconnects the immediateness of what Jesus is talking about and, and takes this context. And so Jesus has been talking about the near and they immediately take all the context of that and throw it into the future. And so that's not so helpful. So the future promise is, is one way of doing it, but I don't also think that's the best way. Another way is looking at it from a blended reality. And, and this is the reality where, where it seems like Jesus, as he's teaching, is interwining two paths. He's speaking about the near. So he's speaking to his disciples in a way of telling them that there is coming a time when the temple will be destroyed, so be ready. But then also at the same time, talking about the future. So he's answering both questions at the same time. So that's the blended reality. And the blended reality has some strengths because it continues on in this cycle that we see carrying out throughout all scripture. So we're in scripture, we see the balance of as God is bringing about looking at his humanity and looking about his love and and looking at his justice, we see at the same time throughout scripture, this balance of judgment and mercy. There comes a time throughout scripture we see when man's sin gets to a point where God says enough. I'm going to judge the sin. Sin will always have to be paid for. And so God always says there's a time where there's judgment will be leveled, but at the same time, there's mercy. So we see those two in balance. And I think this is another way of pointing to that. If we look back in part of God's redemptive plan and we see it unfolding, we can see this in the story of Noah. For we know that that God looked over the world at the time and saw the sin of man had increased so much that he levelized his judgment. He says, I'm going to destroy the earth. But at the same time, as he's dealing with sin of man, he saves by his mercy. He saves Noah and his family. We can see this also through the time of the Exodus as God's people are, are taken into captivity under the Egyptians and they're, they're being totally as, as slaves there. God says, I'm going to come in and I'm going to judge, uh, judge the Egyptians for their sin. But also at the same time, I'm going to show mercy to my people and I'm going to call them out. So we see judgment and mercy playing in the balances throughout history. We also see that as we, we point to the cross, we see judgment as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. We see there's judgment and mercy there. For it is on the cross that Jesus takes on the sin of the world. He takes on the sin of man and totally deals with it and destroys sin by his mercy. 
So I think as Jesus is talking here, I think he's talking about the immediate future. So he's talking about there's a time where there's going to be judgment and mercy. There's, the Israel has to be judged for their rebellion, for their total lack of rejecting Jesus Christ. So there has to be judgment and there's mercy because there will be those that will be saved through those times. And then he's also pointing to a time where there will be judgment and mercy in his second coming. So today I'm going to preach from the blended perspective. We're going to look at both of these perspectives and and in the process seeking to avoid taking any dogmatic positions. For when we come to prophecy and we take a dogmatic approach, we always run the risk of being wrong. Like I think about another time in history when there were people that, that took the scripture, the Old Testament prophecies, some of the Israelites that took some of the Old, Pres- uh, Old Testament prophecies and they said, Jesus or this Messiah, not Jesus, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to come this way. And so they developed this dogmatic approach to when the Messiah was going to come. He was going to come from here. He was going to look like this. He was going to do this. He was going to do this and he was going to do this. And they were dogmatic about their approach so much so that when the Messiah actually came, they missed it. So it's possible if we take such a dogmatic approach to prophecy that we can miss the reality of what the prophecy is really teaching. So today, that's why I think it's good for us to take a blended approach and to to look at Scripture from different perspectives in a way of saying, we can point to some things, but we also have to leave some things up to the Lord. So today, for the rest of our time, I want us to look at the three signs, we won't get to the end, but we're going to begin looking at the three signs that God gives, or that Jesus gives us towards the end and how we're going to respond. So you're going to get, we're going to get through two signs definitely, but with each sign will come a sign and then a response on how we're supposed to respond. So let's look at verse 15 as Jesus gives us the first sign. Verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So in verse 15, we see the first sign is this abomination of desolation. And Jesus is very intentional. With every word that he speaks, he wants his disciples to know as he begins here. He says, so when you see, so he's giving them a statement. He's giving them some clues of some things to look for, that their eyes should be up looking at what's going on around them. So many times we live our lives just wanting to focus in on what's happening to me. Like our world revolves around ourselves. And we can't see what's going on outside because we're so many times focused in on ourselves. But so Jesus is here telling his disciples, look out. So when you see this, know how you should respond. But not only should you know how you respond, but when you see it, know that it is me that is doing it. That this is not by happening by chance, but what is beginning to unfold is another cycle of judgment and mercy. So when you see it taking place, know that it's beginning. So then we must ask the question, what is this abomination of desolation that Daniel was talking about? So if we look back at the the book of Daniel, we see the prophet Daniel speaks about an abomination that causes desolation. And he talks about it several times. He speaks of it in in Daniel chapter 8. He talks about it in Daniel chapter 9. He talks about it again in Daniel chapter 11 and again in chapter 12. And I think Jesus here is reaching back to the phrase that Daniel uses so that he can use it as a teachable moment to instruct his disciples. He's saying each time that it's mentioned in Daniel, what Daniel is doing is he's marking a turning point in history. When, Mark, when Daniel says there's this abomination of desolation or this defiling that is going to take place, it's, it's a turning point that ends or points towards the end. 
So specifically, this abomination that was being referred to was some kind of defiling, some kind of destructive incident in which the temple was defiled. It would be an end or the daily practices of sacrifice. It was a a time in which the temple of God would be defiled or destroyed. And this abomination, Jesus says, would take place with this person doing the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. So some have come to this first sign, and they've come to trying to understand, well, when did this sign take place? Has it already taken place? And some would say that they, this sign of this desolation of abomination, abomination of desolation, took place in the past. They would come and they'd say, Jesus is, or that what Daniel's talking about is not something that Jesus is talking about now, but it took place way back in the Maccabean period. So some would say that this is a past event. And what took place in that ab- abomination of desolation was there was a man named Antichus Epiphanes, who he and his people came upon Jerusalem and totally overtook Jerusalem. And in doing so, they overtook the temple. And in the temple, we see Antichus takes a, makes an altar to the Olympian Zeus. And inside the temple, he also gives himself a statue of himself so the people worship himself and not God. He also takes God's people and he decrees that the Sabbath and some of the other observances of the Israelites were to be discontinued. He abolishes circumcision, and also in the place of the temple, he takes unclean animals and sacrifices them there in the temple. This surely was a very low point in Jewish history. But I don't think Jesus is talking about that. And the reason I don't think Jesus is talking about that event as something that took place in the past is because Jesus gives us this editorial. He says, let the reader understand. So if he's wanting the readers to understand, he's not pointing to something that happens in the past, but yet I think Jesus is talking about something that is either near or in the future, or maybe both. Maybe he's talking about something that is going to happen in their lifetime, or maybe he's talking about something that will happen near the end. So let's look at those. So what would a potentially a near abomination be? I think Jesus is clearly referring to the immediate context and to the immediateness of the destruction of the temple. You see, this abomination would again be a turning point in history for Israel, but also in the turning point for all history. For we know that in 66 to 73, there was a great Jewish revolt. The Jews and the zealots of of the Jewish uh, nation were seeking to, to fight back against the Roman Empire. They were seeking to earn their freedom against Rome. And Rome decides to invade Jerusalem. So Rome comes in and they come to destroy Jerusalem. And in the process, they destroy the temple. So in this process, as the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., we see God levelizing his judgment against the Jews. For the turning point that was taking place was now the Jews were not going to have a place where they could seek forgiveness for their sin. There was no place for them to go and offer sacrifices for atonement. There was no place now that the presence of God could not dwell. So they could not go to a place where God dwelled. But we knew that's also was coming because Jesus says, He is the one going to be the one where we come to him as our sacrifice. No longer do we have to sacrifice for our sins, but Jesus said of himself, I am the sacrifice. So people no longer need to go to a temple, but they need to come to me if they want to be right with God. And so by the temple being destroyed, God takes away all the hope 
of the Jews apart from Christ. So Jesus more has got to be talking about, as we're going to see in context, he's going to be talking about this near abomination. But some that hold to the blended reality view also see that there's a future abomination that may still take place. And they would come to see Jesus speaking here about an abomination that, that is far greater than what we've seen in the past, far greater than what Epiphanes did and far greater what Rome did in 70 AD. But there's got to be some time where there's a future abomination that is going to be more horrendous. And to understand this, we can't stay in Matthew specifically. We've got to go to other places in the text where this may be talked about. See, the scripture in other places like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 13, we see that the, the writers there, Paul in, in 2 Thessalonians and John in Revelation, write about an antichrist or a man of sin. And what they talk about this man of sin is going, he's going to come and he's going to set himself up as the center of worship so that people will worship him or see him as God. And he was going to do this in the end. So it's possible that both Jesus and Daniel are looking ahead to such abomination that is going to take place in the temple in the future. So in order to believe this or to understand this or to follow this, that somewhere along the way, the temple, the Jewish temple is going to be rebuilt. And it will be rebuilt again in Jerusalem. It will be rebuilt in the place where the Muslim Dome of the Rock has stood for over 13 centuries. So if that is the abomination of the desolation, then, then a temple still needs to be resurrected there or constructed there, and then it will be destroyed again. But we see here that Jesus not only says, when you see this abomination of desolation taking place, if it happened in the past, in 70 AD, or if it's going to happen in the future, we see that he tells us his disciples exactly how to respond. When you see, look with me in verse 16. When you see this taking place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. So what Jesus is saying is when you see these things taking place, then be ready to move. These events that you see will begin to trigger this great trial and this great time of difficulties. So he gives them some warning here of how to respond. He says, if you see it taking place and you're at home, don't go back inside, but leave. If you're at work, get away. If you're pregnant or you are a young mother, it's going to be difficult, but get out. Continue on. Move to the hills. Move to the mountains where you can find security and you can find safety. And then in verse 20, he says, pray that your flight might not be in winter. He's, what he's saying is, is that if it is in winter, it's going to be even more extremely difficult for you to travel. And he says, on the Sabbath, pray that it's not on the Sabbath. For if it's on the Sabbath, we know that many times in Jerusalem, they would shut down the city. And so it may be difficult for people to get out of the city if it's on a Sabbath. So pray that it's not on a Sabbath. So if Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples, he's telling them, when you see, and and Luke even talks about this too, when you see the armies beginning to surround Jerusalem, know that the end is near and get out. Get out, hold on, and respond in obedience and trust. So that's the first sign. The second sign 
that Jesus gives us is a sign of great tribulation. Look with me in verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So we see following this abomination of desolation will enter into a time of great tribulation where it will get really, really bad. Where there will be a lot of affliction, where things will not go right, where there will be more brokenness, more pain, more death, more murder. All the things that bring about fear in our lives, they will be increasingly more and more and more. Jesus says that time is to come. For what will take place in this time of great tribulation is the wickedness of man is going to continue to increase and the anger and the judgment of God are going to begin to collide all at the same time. For as man continues to rebel against God, where man continues to say, I am better to God, better than God, I'm going to do right in my own eyes. As man continues to do this, God is going to continue to allow his judgment to grow. And eventually God's going to come to a point where he says, enough. And a great tribulation is going to be where those two things begin to collide. So I think this great tribulation something that Jesus is pointing to in the future. Now, I know if we take it in context and say, well, maybe it's just specifically this great tribulation immediately follows the temple destruction. Some would interpret it to be that way, and I, I think that's one way of interpreting it, but I think it's challenged by the fact of the, of the terminology that Jesus uses right after that. And I will tell you, right after the Jews revolted and, and Rome comes in and takes over Jerusalem, it was not a happy place. Jerusalem was one of the most decimated and desecrated places that has ever been in history. It was a place of great pain. It was a great mourning. It was a a great place of tragedy. But it doesn't quite sound like how Jesus describes it. He says, this time of great tribulation, this distress, will be such has not been seen from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. That doesn't sound like something that is, has just happened in the past. It sounds like Jesus is talking about something that is going to take place. He's saying this, this great tribulation is going to happen, is going to be of greater scale and of greater magnitude and of greater pain than the world has ever seen. I think if we look back in history, we can see some dark times in history. I, mean, I can only imagine believers as they walk through the time of looking at Nazi Germany. I can only think about the thoughts in their mind, keeping Jesus' words in, in the back of their mind as they're trying to keep looking at the signs of the times. I can only imagine that questions must have been growing in their minds. Like, God, is this the end? Like, this is a horrendous act of murder and killing. Mass graves. I can only imagine walking through and feeling what that must have been like. But Jesus says, if that's not it, if the end didn't come right after that, there's a worse time. 
Revelation chapter seven verses or chapter seven through chapter nineteen tells of a time of incredible horror that is to come. Walks through and looks at the simple fact that life is not going to get easier. That as we move towards the end, as God is moving all creation towards judgment, that it's going to get worse. And we're going to see again playing out judgment and mercy going together. And we can see the mercy of God. As we under, we'll understand the, the, the judgment of God, we can see the mercy of God in verse 22. Look with me at that again. So in verse 21, he's talking about the great tribulation that is so bad that it's never been this bad and never will be again. And then he says, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. This is clear indication that God is in control of all events, even in these days of great horror. That Jesus and that God are in control at the beginning of these great days, that God is going to be in control through these great days, and that there is a set end to these great horrible days. For we must understand that if the wickedness of man and the wrath of God were allowed to exist and go unchecked, there would be so much terror in the end that no one would survive. So we know that this time of tribulation will not go on indefinitely. Why? Because of God's elect. Do you see the mercy of God in that? Because God has called men unto himself and he has saved them by his own blood, because they will be present during this great time, God is going to allow an end to come, a set end to the great pain that humanity endures because of his elect or because of believers. There's judgment, but there is mercy. There is always mercy. So that's the sign. In verse 23, he gives us a way that we are to respond. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So Jesus here gives a warning. He says, as creation gets worse, what's going to take place is that people are going to seek to find hope. They're going to look at the seemingly chaos of the world. They're going to look at the pain. They're going to look at the destruction. They're going to look at the brokenness of the world. And they're going to seek to try to grab hold of something that will promise them hope. Something that will give them meaning. Something that will give them purpose. Something that will just allow them to be settled in the chaos. And Jesus says that there are going to men that are going to look out and they're going to see this opportunity to deceive people. They're going to take the pain of people and they're going to seek to capitalize upon their pain and they're going to come in the form of false Christ, those claiming to be the Messiah and false prophets claiming to, be, to know the way unto God or the way to have hope. And they're going to come with false promises. They're going to come with a false path. And what's going to happen is they're going to lead many, many people astray. 
Someone's going to come and they're going to stand up and they're going to say, I know how to have hope. Here's the answer. And so people, because they're going to be hungry for hope, will grab hold of them and they will follow them. And Jesus is saying those people will be led astray and they will not be led to the destination that they desire, but instead they'll be led unto death. And Jesus even says that believers will not be immune from being challenged. There will be believers that, that believe that they know God and they know a person, some, some parts of God's character and Christ's character. And then when they're, what they think is Christ's character and what they see in their life don't mesh up. When they believe that God is a loving God, but yet they see their family being taken away and killed and murdered. Then what they know of God and what they think of God and what they see of God, they'll be challenged to reject God and go against and go and get these other people that are, that are clamoring for hope. That's why Jesus says, do not be, be aware Do not be deceived. I told you these things beforehand, so don't lose heart. Don't lose faith. For when they come and they say that that the Messiah has come and he's in the wilderness, Jesus says, don't go. Don't go out there because when I come, I'm not coming in a deserted area. I'm not going to come in a way where people aren't. And then when they come and they say, go look, he's in the inner room. Jesus says, don't look. When Jesus comes again, he's not coming in hiding. He's not coming to just reveal himself to certain selected few. But we can look at verse 27 and we can see exactly what he says about his return. His return is not going to come in the wilderness. He's not going to come in the inner room. In verse 27, he's going to say, For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Jesus is coming back. That should be great hope for us today. As we live in the challenging worlds that we live in, as we live in a world that is riddled with cancer, as we live in a world that is full of hate, as we live in a world that is full of death, as we live in a world that seems meaningless, we have hope because we know that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's coming back to judge, but he's also coming back with mercy. And he's gonna take those that believe with him and he's going to rescue them from this world. He's gonna finally rescue us from this pain. And in verse 27, we see his actual return will be unmistakable in nature. It'll be unmistakable and it'll be universal. It will be completely visible and its cosmic scope and effect will be big enough for everyone to see and to know. All people, if we go into verse 28, we see all people will be drawn to Christ. They'll be drawn just as vultures gather to devour a corpse or an animal carcass. As as we see vultures flying around, they know that. And so if you want to know where the corpse is, if you want to know where the action is, just look for the vultures. So as we come to just a time of of thinking through this, we need to, to realize and we need to understand that the world we live in is challenging. The world we live in is scary. The world we live in is full of pain. But the world we live in now is not as good as it's going to get. That Jesus has said, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. But I'm coming back. 
And when I come, I will come with judgment and I will come with mercy. So this morning, if you're here and you have accepted Jesus Christ and you're living in the mercy of God, you're living in the grace of God, then let me remind you, as you face the fears of this world and your heart is pulled towards fear, let me remind you that as you begin to fear, let go of that fear and trust in God. This week, I had a very real experience of this in my own life, and I had to put this to the test. For I don't know why, like I know the word of God, but for some reason, as I have begun to to listen to the reports of this Ebola virus, like it has really freaked me out. Like I began thinking about sitting there watching my children. If they happen to contract this Ebola virus, I don't know if I could stomach the fact of holding them in the hospital and seeing them die. Or I don't know if I could allow my children to watch me die. And so there was a, a night this week that I stayed awake and I couldn't sleep. I was wrestling back and forth. Oh God, how do we be prepared? I don't know. I'm full of fear over this. And it wasn't until about two o'clock in the morning that God had to remind me of like, hey, you know what you're preaching on Sunday? Like you can't be a man that allows fear to overwhelm you. Yes, fear can creep in. And there are times in which we are fearful people, but we must respond as people that have faith. And yes, it's gonna be bad. But the reality is, is our God is good. So I don't need to respond in fear, but I can trust in God. So if you're here today, and I don't know, like if you're in a place where you're fearing something about the world or the end of the world, don't be afraid. You know it's going to end right, right? We're going to see in a couple weeks, it ends right. Jesus comes back and he wins. It's victorious. So the battle's already been won. So we can live now in hope. Or maybe you're here today and you're, you're at a place, or maybe you've really begun to realize for the very first time, that there's a judgment coming. Like so many churches now are, are afraid to talk about the judgment that's coming. And I want you to believe and I want you to understand that God that is holy and right is coming back and all of the sin of the world is going to be judged. And so if you are a sinful person, you will be judged for your sin. And that judgment is not gonna be a beautiful time, but it's gonna be a time where your body is going to be destroyed and then your soul is going to live on through eternity, continuing to endure the wrath of God forever. And the only hope you have is to let go of hope in yourself, let go of your good deeds, to let go of all that you think that you are and place all of your hope and faith in the work of Jesus Christ. For what Jesus has done as he came and lived a perfect life and died on a cross and on that cross, he paid for the sin of the world. And God looked at at Jesus' sacrifice and said, it's enough, it is effective, and it is good. Now, if people would yet but believe in Jesus, they could be saved. So if you're here today and for the first time you understand that you're facing the judgment of God all on your own, you can call out to the Lord and be saved. God is good. His word is good. And in just a few moments, we're going to sing a song. And as we sing the song, let it just be a time for you to reflect on what we've talked about and what you've heard. And let it be a time for you to reflect upon what the Holy Spirit has been working inside of you. 
Maybe you're here today and, and God has been teaching you something that hasn't even been a part of what we've been talking about, but you just feel like you need to respond to it. Well, take these few moments and respond as the Lord is leading you. Maybe you just need to confess some sin. Maybe you're here today and you need to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. If that's you, if you're here and you're like, I need to know more about this Jesus, like you've just totally blown my mind, then at the end of the service, come by and take me by the hand and say, Pastor, I just need to know Jesus. And I'd love to sit down with you and let you know how you can know him better. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. And we thank you, God, that you have not left us here to wonder but that you have shown us the ways and you've shown us what is to come. Father, we know that you are coming back. And Father, your coming back is good, but it's also scary. It's scary because there will be some that will endure and to experience your judgment. And Father, I pray that you would help as many, many, many people escape that judgment as possible. Father, for us here today, as those that do believe in you, may we just continue to place our faith and trust in you as we walk through the challenges of life. And Father, we pray that you come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.